0: Hello and welcome back to Byzantium and the Crusades. My name is Nick Holmes and this is episode 11 of the Second Age of the Crusaders and the title is The Hollow Victory. Now, as I mentioned last time, we've reached what I think is a very bizarre part of crusading history for two reasons. The first is that the narrative is now dominated by the German Emperor Frederick II, Hohenstaufen, who was one of the most unusual monarchs in medieval Europe, to say the least. And second, Frederick did actually succeed in doing what so many other people have failed to do, that is that he recaptured Jerusalem. But this is now where it becomes very bizarre because there was no actual fighting in this crusade, which historians nevertheless refer to as the Sixth Crusade. Instead, Jerusalem was actually given to Frederick by the Egyptian sultan Al-Kamil, but with only a narrow strip of land connecting it to the coast and the city walls have been demolished so that the city was defenceless and could easily be reoccupied by the Muslims whenever they wanted. So why did Al-Kamil do this? Well, the reason... Is that he was more worried by his Muslim neighbours than by the Crusaders. First, there was rivalry with his brother Al Mazam, who ruled Syria, and after he died, and Al Kamil had installed another brother called Al Ashraf, with whom he was on much better terms, there were the powerful Seljuk Turks in Anatolia, and also another Turkish tribe called the Khwarizmians, who he regarded as much more of a threat than the Crusaders. So, In short, he was willing to let Frederick have Jerusalem on a sort of token basis to keep him quiet. Of course, you should also remember that Al-Kamil had faced and defeated the Fifth Crusade, which had very nearly taken Cairo, and so he knew just how dangerous the Crusaders could be if they got their act together. So I think he was very keen to buy them off rather than have them at his throat together with his Muslim rivals. And so what about Frederick? Well, as you know from the last episode, he was very intelligent and learned and spoke Arabic and was as interested in Islam as he was in Christianity, as well as being a religious sceptic and a free thinker. He's acquired this reputation in history as being the sort of first Renaissance man. But the striking thing is that he never actually used his intelligence and education to achieve very much. And when it came to the recovery of Jerusalem, he does seem to have been on a fairly pointless ego trip. This particularly infuriated the barons in Outremer, as the Crusader states, of course, were called, which were now just a line of coast running from Antioch in the north down to Jaffa in the south. And one point worth explaining before we launch into this next phase of this peculiar story is that the Crusader barons regarded Frederick as an imposter. Now, it's important here to understand the medieval obsession with hereditary monarchy. In the Middle Ages, it was absolutely essential, just as it is actually still today with the English monarchy and also the monarchies today of Saudi Arabia and Japan, for the monarch to be directly descended from the family considered to be the royal family. Now, the Kingdom of Jerusalem was a bit different because it was partially hereditary and partially elected by the barons of The kingdom. You might remember from an earlier episode that in 1192 the barons had elected Conrad of Montferrat as king. And what the barons disliked about the Emperor Frederick was that he claimed to be king of Jerusalem, but they didn't think he was eligible to be king unless they elected him. His claim was based on the fact that he had married Isabella II, known as Yolanda, who was the daughter of Maria Montferrat and John of Brienne. She was the last surviving Montferrat, who had inherited the title of Queen of Jerusalem. Now, the Pope was happy to call Frederick King if he married her and went on crusade. But the barons just didn't agree with this. And to make matters worse... Yolanda also died partly because of Frederick's mistreatment of her, leaving a son, Conrad, who was the real heir to the kingdom. Now, the barons regarded Frederick, therefore, as just the regent for his son. But Frederick was so desperate to be king of Jerusalem that this would lead to a major conflict between him and the barons, as you will hear. So, without further ado... Let's hear the bizarre story of how Frederick recovered Jerusalem but achieved nothing except cause division among the Crusaders. As before, I'll read extracts from my adapted version of Sir Stephen Runciman's brilliant History of the Crusades. Hope you enjoy it. In the year 1229, the Emperor Frederick had, without striking a blow, won back Jerusalem for Christendom. But seldom has a treaty met with such immediate and universal disapproval. The Muslim world was horrified. At Damascus and Nazir, not without relish, ordered public mourning for the betrayal of Islam. Even Al-Kamil's own imams, abused him to his face, and his lame reply that he'd only ceded ruined houses and churches while the Muslim shrines were intact and saved for Islam was little consolation. Nor did his comment that the Muslims were still strategic masters of the province seem an adequate excuse. The Christians, on the other hand, were well aware of the strategic position. The more intransigent of them lamented that Jerusalem had not been won back by the sword, and were disgusted that the infidels should retain their shrines, and all of them remembered the negotiations of the Fifth Crusade when Al-Kamil's offer of the whole of Palestine was rejected because the strategists pointed out that without Utre Jordan Jerusalem could not be held. How then could it be held now when only one narrow strip of land connected it with the coast? There was none of the rejoicing that Frederick had expected no one suggested that excommunication should be lifted from the man who had done such a great service to Christendom. The patriarch Gerald proclaimed his displeasure and hurled an interdict against the holy city if it should receive the emperor. The Templars, furious at the temple remaining with the Muslims, made their protest. Neither they nor the Hospitallers would have dealings with Frederick, who was the enemy of the Pope. The local baron already resentful of Frederick's absolutism were alarmed by the impracticability of the new frontier and their dislike of Frederick was enhanced when he announced that he would go to Jerusalem and be crowned king for in fact he was not their king but only the regent and father of the king on Saturday, the seventeenth of march twelve twenty nine Frederick made his ceremonious entry into Jerusalem. His German and Italian troops escorted him, but very few of the local barons. Of the military orders, only the Teutonic knights were represented, and of the clergy there were only Frederick's Sicilian bishops and his English friends, Peter of Winchester and William of Exeter. The emperor was met at the gate by the Quadi Shams, Adin of Nablus, who handed him the keys of the city in the name of the Sultan. The short procession then passed through empty streets to the old buildings of the hospital where Frederick took up his residence. There was no sign of enthusiasm. The Muslims had deserted the city except for their shrines. The native Christians held aloof, fearing with reason that a Latin restoration would do them no good. Frederick's own companions were embarrassed by his excommunication, and when it was known that the Archbishop of Caesarea was on his way with orders from the Patriarch to put the city under an interdict, there was constraint and hesitation at the court. Next morning, Sunday the eighteenth, Frederick went to attend mass in the church of the Holy Sepulchre. Not a single priest was there, only his own soldiers and the Teutonic Knights. Undeterred, he had a royal crown laid on the altar, then took it up himself and placed it on his own head. Thereupon the master of the Teutonic Knights read out first in German, then in French, a eulogy of the Emperor-King describing his achievements and justifying his policy. The court then moved back to the hospital and Frederick held a council to discuss the defence of Jerusalem. The grand master of the hospital and the preceptor of the temple, who at a discreet distance had followed the emperor to Jerusalem, consented to be present along with the English bishops and Hermann of Salza. Frederick ordered that the Tower of David and the Gate of St Stephen were to be repaired at once, and he handed over the royal residence attached to the Tower of David to, to the Teutonic Order. Except from the Teutons, he met with very little cooperation. It was with relief that Frederick turned aside from his work to visit the Muslim shrines. The Sultan had tactfully ordered the muezzin at Al-Aqsa not to make the call to prayer while the Christian sovereign was in the city, but Frederick protested the Muslims must not change their customs because of him. Besides, he said he had come to Jerusalem in order to hear the muezzin's call through the night. As he entered the holy area of the Haram as Sharif, he noticed a Christian cleric following behind him. He had once rudely ejected him and gave orders that any Christian priest that crossed its threshold without permission from the Muslims should be put to death. As he walked round the Dome of the Rock, he noticed the inscription that Saladin had made in mosaic round the cupola to record the building's purification from the polytheists. Who, asked the emperor with a smile, might the polytheists be? He remarked on the gratings over the windows and was told that they were put up to keep out the sparrows. God, has now sent you the pigs, he said, using the vulgar Muslim term for the Christians. It was noted that he had Muslims in his following, amongst them his teacher of philosophy, an Arab from Sicily. The Muslims were interested by the emperor, but not impressed. His appearance disappointed them. They said that he would not be worth 200 dirhams in the slave market with his smooth red face and his myopic eyes. They were disquieted by his remarks against his own faith. They could respect an honest Christian, but a Frank who disparaged Christianity and paid crude compliments to Islam aroused their suspicions. It may be that they had heard the remark universally attributed to him that Moses, Christ and Muhammad were all three impostors. In any case, he seemed a man without religion. The enlightened Fakr al-Din, with whom he had often discussed philosophy in the Palace at Acre, fell victim to his fascination, and the Sultan al-Kamil, whose speculative outlook was akin to his own, regarded him with affectionate admiration, particularly when Fakr al-Din reported his confidence that he would never have insisted on the cession of Jerusalem had not his whole prestige been at stake. But pious Muslims and pious Christians alike looked askance at the whole episode Obvious cynicism never wins the hearts of the people. On Monday the 19th, Peter of Caesarea arrived to hurl the patriarch's interdict on Jerusalem. In his rage at the insult, Frederick at once abandoned further work on the defence of the city and gathered together all his men and hastened down to Jaffa. He paused for a day there and then moved up the coast to Acre, where he arrived on the 23rd. He found Acre seething with discontent. The barons could not forgive him for flouting the constitution, though only regent he had made a treaty without their consent and had crowned himself king. There were riots between local men-at-arms and the emperor's garrison. The Genoese and Venetian colonists resented favours shown to the Pisans, whose mother city was one of Frederick's few constant allies in Italy. The emperor's return only intensified the bitterness in the atmosphere. On the following morning, Frederick summoned representatives of all the realm to meet him and give them an account of his actions. His words were met with angry disapproval. He then resumed, Resorted to force, he threw a cordon of police around the Patriarch's palace and round the headquarters of the Templars, and he put guards at the city gates, so that no one unauthorized could leave or enter the city. It was rumoured that he intended to confiscate the great Templar Fortress at Athlit, but he learned that it was too strongly garrisoned. He contemplated kidnapping John of Ebelin and the Grand Master of the Temple, and sending them to Apulia in Italy, but they each kept themselves well guarded, and he did not attempt the. Vengeance. But meanwhile, he received serious news from Italy where his father-in-law, John of Brienne, had invaded his states at the head of a papal army. He could not defer his departure from the east much longer. He needed to gather troops to fight in Italy, so he compromised. He announced his forthcoming departure and appointed as warden for the kingdom Balian of Sidon and Garnier the German. Balian was known for his moderate views and his mother was an Ebelin. Garnier, despite his German origin, had been a lieutenant of King John of Brienne. Odo of Montbéliard was left as constable of the kingdom in charge of the army. These appointments, in fact, represented a defeat for the emperor. He knew that he had lost, and to avoid humiliating scenes, he planned to embark on the 1st of May at sunrise, when no one would be about. But the secret was not kept. As he and his followers passed down the street of the butchers to the harbour, the people crowded out of the doors and pelted him with entrails and dung. John of Ebelin and Odo of Montbelliar heard the riot and rode up to restore order, and then they bade a courteous goodbye to the emperor on his galley. But Frederick was furious and answered with muttered curses. From Acre, Frederick sailed to Limassol in Cyprus. He remained some ten days there, where he confirmed that the wardens should be Amalric Barlet. Then he set out for Italy, and on the 10th of June 1229, he landed at Brindisi. Of all the great crusaders, the Emperor Frederick II was the most disappointing. He was a man of great brilliance who knew the mentality of the Muslims and could appreciate the intricacies of their diplomacy. And he saw that there must be some understanding between them and the Christians if Frankish Outremer was to endure. But he failed to comprehend the nature of Frankish Outremer, the experience and achievements of his Norman ancestors and his own temperament and conception of Empire led him to seek to build a centralized autocracy. He found it too hard a task in Europe outside his Italian lands. In Cyprus, he might have achieved it had he chosen his instruments better, but in the diminished kingdom of Jerusalem, the experiment was bound to fail. The kingdom was little more than a group of towns and castles strung precariously together without a defensible frontier. A centralized government was no longer possible. The local authorities had to be ruled by a tactful and respected leader. These authorities were the lay barons and the military orders. Frederick alienated the lay barons by trampling upon the rights and traditions of which they were proud. The military orders were even more important, for they alone, now that knights preferred to seek their fortunes in Frankish Greece could provide recruits to fight and settle in the east. But they, though their masters sat on the king's council, and though they might obey him as commander-in-chief on the battlefield, owed allegiance only to the pope – Therefore, they could not be expected to help a ruler whom the Pope had excommunicated and branded as an enemy of Christendom. Only the Teutonic knights, whose order was the least important of the three, were prepared, because of their master's friendship with Frederick, to defy the papal ban. It was remarkable that with so few assets, and with such hatred roused against him, that Frederick was able to win a diplomatic success, as startling as the recovery of Jerusalem. Itself. But in fact, the recovery of Jerusalem was of little profit to the kingdom. Owing to Frederick's hurried departure, it remained an open city. It was impossible to police the road up from the coast, and Muslim bandits continually robbed and even killed the pilgrims. A few weeks after Frederick had left the country, fanatical Muslim imams in Hebron and Nablus organised a raid on Jerusalem itself. The Christians of all rights fled for safety to the Tower of David, while the governor, Rinald of Haifa, sent to Acre for help help. The arrival of the two wardens, Balian of Sidon and Garnier, with an army obliged the raiders to retire. The Muslim rulers repudiated any connection with this raid and when a larger garrison was left in the city and some minor fortifications were built, there was a little bit more security. The patriarch lifted his interdict and came to reside there for part of the year. But the situation was still precarious. The Sultan could have recaptured Jerusalem at any time that he chose. In Galilee, where the castles of Montfort and Turon were rebuilt, the Christian hold was stronger. But with the Muslims still in Safed and Banyas, there was no guarantee of permanence for the kingdom. Meanwhile, back in Italy, on twenty-third of July, twelve thirty, Frederick made his peace with the Pope by the Treaty of San Germano. He had been, on the whole, victorious in Italy, and he was ready now to make concessions over the control of the Church in Sicily. In Order to be absolved from his excommunication. His reconciliation with the papacy strengthened his hand in the East. The patriarch Gerald was told to lift the interdict from Jerusalem and was reproved for having laid it without reference to Rome. The military orders no longer felt obliged to stand aloof and the barons could no longer count on ecclesiastical support. The emperor waited his time. In the autumn of 1231, Telling the Pope that he must send out an army for the defence of Jerusalem, he collected some 600 knights, 100 sergeants, 700 armed infantrymen and 3,000 marines and dispatched them under his marshal the Neapolitan Richard Filangieri in 32 galleys. Filangieri was given the title of Imperial Legate. But in truth, this expedition was aimed at asserting Frederick's power over the barons of Outremer and would provoke a civil war between the Crusaders. And that ends this episode. Hope you enjoyed it. And if you did, I'd be really grateful if you wanted to recommend it to a friend or leave a review. Thank you so much. And in the next episode, we'll hear what happened in the civil war caused by Frederick.